Welcome to What The F Fertility, the podcast and community for those thinking about having a baby, actively trying to have a baby, those struggling or maybe having treatments, or really wherever you are on the journey, this is for you. I'm Pips. I'm Alex. And I'm Maddie. And ladies, I can't believe I'm saying this, finally we are doing this. It's been over two years in the making of this podcast because we've all been through one hell of a roller coaster of a fertility journey. I can't believe it's been two years. Well, I can, but we really have just been asking, (laughs) what's the F at every stage, haven't we? But I suppose we've become so passionate about this subject that we've created this podcast. I know. What? What the F? We've got a podcast. And each week we will be bringing you interviews with fertility experts. And I'm going to be on hand as your resident fertility nutritionist, sharing top tips on the little things that can help us along the way. We just want to share our stories very briefly to give you an understanding of why we're doing this podcast. So I was diagnosed with a low ovarian reserve and discovered that I don't have many eggs for my age. My levels were too low for IVF on the NHS, but we did just keep trying. I was due to start IVF and then miraculously fell pregnant, but sadly had a miscarriage. After doing everything in my power and no doctor will tell you it's possible. And with a lot of Maddie's help, I managed to increase my levels. And now I have a toddler Louie and another baby on the way. Honestly, Pips, it's I'm so happy for you. And, and you were a pleasure to work with. My story wow. is is actually very different. And I'm currently kind of at the crossroads where I'm really seriously considering whether just to end my fertility journey. I've been on a long break over a year now, which was well needed. And I was deep in the trenches for over four years. And during that time, I sadly had nine miscarriages. I've had two rounds of IVF, two rounds of ICSI, one donor IVF cycle. Along this way, I've been diagnosed with immune issues as well as endometriosis and adenomyosis. I've had the endo treated with surgery and yet I still just can't make this decision as to whether to end it or have one last try. So watch this space, we'll see what happens. Oh sis, yeah. you are you are you are honestly you are my you are my hero, and you also, like Pip said earlier, you really helped me with where I got to. So for those that don't know, Maddie is my sister, and we have very different stories. And my partner and I were trying for a baby for over two years, getting nowhere, and we were sent for tests, and it was through these tests that we discovered that both my fallopian tubes are blocked which means that IVF was the only solution. After our first failed transfer, we then went again and we were very fortunate that we got pregnant and I now have two-year-old toddlers, Marnie and Phoenix. And they are dreamy. So we hope that with What the F Fertility, we can bring you some light and some hope wherever you are on your journey. So I think you can see that we have all got such different experiences, but throughout our journey, we had each other, we've collected a wealth of experience And during this process, we know how alone and isolated you can feel during such a traumatic time. And we hope to provide support and community to those of you who are going through what we are going through as well. We really hope you enjoy. So this week, Pips and I chatted to GP Dr. Zoe Williams. 
She's one of the country's most valued professionals in lifestyle medicine and physical activity. She practices as an NHS GP in London, is one of the resident GPs on ITV's This Morning, and has also appeared on The One Show, Horizon, and Trust Me, I'm a Doctor. She really knows her stuff. Essentially, Dr Zoe debunks the world of medicine in her own unique way, and we are just so excited to have her on What the F Fertility. Please note that this episode was recorded back when Alex and I were in the thick of trying to conceive. And in this episode, Dr Zoe covers everything from when to go to the doctor, what tests you should ask for, and how to maximise your chances of getting pregnant. Zoe also shares her journey of freezing her eggs in her late 30s. We hope you enjoy. What the absolute F, Pip. We're so lucky to be having these guests that are coming on our podcast. I know. I'm so excited to have Dr. Zoe. And here she is. It is Dr. Zoe Williams. Yay! (laughs) How are you doing? It's so nice to see your face. So nice to see you. Well, thank you for having me. I'm a big fan of what you're trying to do, what you're trying to achieve. I really think that this is not talked about enough and uh yeah hats off to you both just sorry that you're having to have these conversations in the first place it's all a bit shit isn't it yeah but it is common you know yeah people are going through it we're there for each other at the moment while we're all going through it but there's so we know that so many people do it alone or they feel there's lots still lots of shame and stigma and I I just want to sort of beat that down and and try and be more open and honest and and if we can help people in some way then that is a totally winning situation so fingers crossed it's such a a, an overwhelming subject and I think at every stage Alex and I have just been going what the f and we're like hang on a minute yeah like that's it that this is it it is what the f and you know all we can do is 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 ask so Zoe's Let's start from the beginning. So if you are thinking about having a baby or trying for a baby, what should we be doing apart from the obvious? Well, it's interesting that you say the obvious. And and when you say the obvious, I assume you mean that you're having regular sexual intercourse. But I, in my experience as a GP, have had a few incidents where, I mean, the first thing that we do as a GP is check that the person is having sexual intercourse check that they're having vaginal sex because I've had a few instances where couples are not regularly having vaginal sex and didn't realize that it had to be in the right hole wow your faces are looking shocked (laughs) but this happens um and also the regularity because sometimes you know if, if if patients have partners that live separately or or mostly spend their time abroad are they having sex at the right time of the month, roughly the right time of the month to conceive? So, so it's, it's, it's reasonably straightforward, I think, to most of us, but always worth starting with the very, very basics that if you're trying to conceive, if you have sex every two to three days, um, then you can't miss your window. Um, but for most of us, and everybody's different, it depends on your cycle, it depends on the regularity of your periods, but usually looking towards the middle of your cycle is the time that you don't want to miss. And these days, a lot of people use ovulation sticks to see if they're ovulating so that they can hit that window. And I think they're a good idea. Yeah. But not to completely depend solely on them. We're all different. And ovulation sticks are mostly very good at giving us that indication as to when we're our most fertile. 
But if you're one of those few people where things are slightly different and they're not quite in sync with that, you might be actually purposefully missing your fertile window. Mm. So, so around the time that you're normally getting the positive sticks, just be having sex at least every two days. Um, and those are the, that's the basics. That's the basics. That's how it should, that's how it should happen if the world is perfect. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, obviously you mentioned their periods, you know, you know, not just using the, the, the ovulation sticks. What else can we, should we be looking out for? So, so one of the best things that women can do is start to just learn the signs, understand their own body. So um, the discharge tends to change around the time of ovulation. So it's sometimes referred to as egg white discharge. Mm-hmm. So the discharge can be, well, essentially it's the appearance of egg white. So the change usually, again, in, in a very typical woman um, would be that the discharge is a bit clearer, a bit slimy. Um, and that tends to happen around the time of ovulation. So if that happens, boom get in there um get between the sheets (laughs) in the right hole sorry (laughs) Um, but you know changes to mood changes to breast tenderness um so getting to learn your body and using the ovulation sticks as well to guide so that you can recognize when those changes are happening that's probably one of the best things that you can do and this is especially for women who don't have regular periods Mm. um being able to identify when you're when you're ovulating but you know I can't stress enough that actually if you're just doing it regularly you know two or three times a week every two to three days then that way you can't miss it and I think sometimes people think well should you not let like the potency of the sperm build up so have a week of abstinence before well actually no no just if you have sex two to three times a week yeah the whole time then that is the safest way to make sure you don't miss your window yeah I was going to ask you that because my husband and I he I was very much so we did the ovulation sticks and when I was ovulating I was like right let's have sex three times a day every you know any possible second and he was coming from the point of view he was like no let's just do one good you know (laughs) um because obviously the quality of the sperm so is he right? What you were saying, we should have just been doing it every two to three days as opposed to, I mean, having sex multiple times a day, does that um, affect the quality of the sperm? Look, I think, I think when it comes to all of this, you could argue it either way. And I'm not sure that there's a great deal of evidence to support going in either direction. Um, but I mean, if you're having sex let's say for example, I mean, who does this, but if you're having sex three times a day, every day, then it's fair to say that on that one time that it's important, you might not have as good a yield, let's say, but actually, if you're doing it three times a day, you've kind of got that window of maybe three days when you can get pregnant. So you've got nine times, nine times the chances, but each chance is a bit less likely. So you can kind of argue it either way. And I think there isn't really a right or wrong. Um, But as well, you know, we all know that when you're trying to have a baby, sex changes so much, that the purpose yeah. <laughs> of sex changes so much. So I think there's, it's important to say trying to maintain somewhat of a valuable sex life in, in, in what it should be as well. And I think when you're trying to hit it three times a day, yeah, there's, you know, it's 
quick quick i've got to get out to work yeah. you've got 30 yeah. seconds boom 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 I know, yeah. um, <laughs> can, man, can i just say that i mean three times a day is for anyone else who's listening finding that and never been able to do that <laughs> no, no. you know please feel totally normal <laughs> no. we're giving extreme examples okay good. But, just but, but i think you know what's what is realistic to aim to achieve is to be having sex every two days whilst you're potentially within that fertile window so the first day of your period is day one say from day seven all the way through to your next period you have sex every 48 hours mm. um then you're doing you're doing it right that is yeah. doing that is one way there are many ways to do it right that is one way of doing it right um and you know that way you can hopefully try and maintain you know having sex when you think well, we haven't done it for a couple of days shall we do it darling but then also hopefully sometimes just being a bit spontaneous and yeah. it happening a bit of romance and a bit of pleasure as well I know which is so hard to do when you're just on that baby making train and you forget about the romance it goes out the window and the pressure can just mount within you know as you get older and every month passes by anything any truth in once you've had sex the old legs up against the wall (laughs) (laughs) because I've been in shoulder stand positions I'm a yoga teacher I've tried everything So all the old wives' tales around positions and this, that and the other, um, there's no evidence to back that up. However, as a doctor, as a scientist, knowing there's no evidence, I myself may have been guilty of getting into the old um, bridge position with the feet up in the air. Because yeah. Well, it's not going to do me any harm. And it, it kind of seems to make sense that gravity can only help things. But, but really, I guess when you think about it, the sperm that are going to get all the way to the egg that stand that chance, they're the ones that come out under quite a lot of pressure. Immediately on ejaculation, they're the ones that get through the canal, the little hole within the cervix, into the womb. Then they've got to swim all the way up through the womb, get out to where the egg is. So whatever ejaculate is stuck hanging around in your vagina after sex by getting upside down, you're not going to get it to where it needs to be. So I guess when I use my scientific brain doesn't make sense to to get the feet up in the air but I still have done it same it's worth it's worth a try no exactly Exactly. yeah but the sperm that have made it to the good place they're not going to fall out of you exactly quickly touching on on periods if you have an irregular period does that mean that there might be a red flag within uh, your body or your cycle what signs and symptoms should people be looking out for if they are if they do have a regular period What, what does that sort of mean Yeah. So um, when we take a history, a gynecological history from a woman, um, two of the questions are um, how regular are your periods? So some women will say my period comes every 28 days, every 35 days, every 17 days, but they know when it's coming. So that would mean that your period is regular and would suggest that you're likely to be ovulating every month and then we ask how many days do you bleed for and again anything from one day up to seven days it's all normal but if somebody is missing periods so if they have a period one month then the next month then they don't have one for a couple of months then they have one so they're missing periods that would perhaps suggest um that it's more likely they might have polycystic ovaries Mm -hmm. um and they might not be um, ovulating each month and if trying to conceive then you know obviously if you're not ovulating every month it's only the months that you ovulate that an egg is released and that you can get pregnant so it doesn't mean you can't get pregnant but your Mm. chances of getting pregnant are reduced and there are treatments to help support that so if people are regularly missing periods 
then it's worth consulting with a doctor. As soon as you start trying to get pregnant, I would say, at least let them know and get the test done to see where you're starting out from. A lot of people with polycystic ovaries do go ahead and just get pregnant normally, don't have any problems. It doesn't mean you definitely will have issues. And can you just, for those who might be listening and are like, polycystic ovaries, what what is that? Can you just let let us know what it actually means and and what the condition is? Yeah. So, So every month, if you think about in your ovaries you have you're born with millions of of eggs but they're not eggs actually they're potential eggs Mm -hmm. and and each month you have a number of follicles in each ovary that are almost trying to race to be the follicle that is the dominant follicle that gets to release an egg each month um and it requires a certain blend of um hormones to first of all mature those follicles and then something happens called a LH surge the luteinizing hormone surge which is what we're looking for with the ovulation sticks that gives the signal to release and the dominant follicle be the one that wins and gets to release its eggs now sometimes in people where there's something either there's an interference with the hormones there are lots of reasons for that or sometimes for absolutely no reason whatsoever people have lots of these follicles and they never they don't release they don't ovulate so when you do a scan to have a look at the ovaries what you see is lots of what looks like lots of cysts in the ovaries mm-hmm. um it's very common okay. and the majority of women if you were to scan I can't remember the number off the top of my head but if you were to scan 100 healthy women quite a significant number of them you would see this appearance of polycystic ovaries but actually those women won't go on, most of them won't go on to have problems. You don't need to identify it. They have regular periods. They right. still ovulate. They still have normal fertility. So having polycystic ovaries on, it, in, on its own for a lot of people isn't a problem. Um, but polycystic ovarian syndrome is when that you have symptoms that go alongside that. And sometimes people who have altered insulin sensitivity, that's a, mm-hmm. a part of that. So sometimes there's this picture polyovarian syndrome where there's the ovaries there's the fertility problems um, increased risk of obesity more likely to be diagnosed with type 2 diabetes other signs such as hair growing in places where you wouldn't expect it to grow um, so that's a condition where people are more likely to have problems so it's it's something that I think people quite, find quite confusing because yeah. it is quite confusing mm. because you can have polycystic ovaries and it's not an issue and you know you don't have to even doesn't it's not even worth knowing about yeah you might not even know or, or yeah, yeah exactly and you don't need to know or you might have polycystic ovaries and that is potentially going to affect your fertility so so generally if somebody is struggling with their fertility it's mm. one of the first tests that would be okay. offered to have a look at the ovaries and see if they're if you do have polycystic ovaries or not so, so at what point would you say should a should you go to the doctor? So you've been you, you, doing your ovulation sticks, you know, having reg, regular sex, um, say you have regular periods, but you're just not getting pregnant. When should you go to your doctor? When should you make that call? Well, I mean, there's, there's a nice guidance on this, which I'll come on to. But first of all, what I'd like to say as a GP is you can go straight away if you want. You know, even if you're thinking about starting a family you want to come off the pill and you just want some advice from your doctor about 
what to do if you start if you're starting to conceive of course you should start taking folic acid and vitamin d and you should you know make sure that you're doing what you can to be healthy regular physical activity eating a diet that's high in nutrients etc so i don't think there's any time that's too soon to go and get advice from your gp and have a chat with them um but in in terms of infertility and looking towards potentially interventions such as ivf it depends where you live to some extent sadly there are places in the country where IVF is not available at all on the NHS and in other places in the country um, you can have three cycles on the NHS in some places it's two some places it's one depending again on where you live there are certain restrictions so your age the cutoff for, for the age at which IVF it is offered depends on where you live as well um, but in terms of seeking medical support to get pregnant um, I would say at 12 months if you've been trying for 12 months and you haven't got pregnant that's the time to go and see your GP in most cases IVF wouldn't be offered until it's been two years but after 12 months I think it's feasible to start looking at all of the investigations that are going to happen before IVF is offered anyway 80% of couples will be pregnant after 12 months or after 12 cycles. Mm -hmm. And of those that haven't conceived after 12 months, about 50% of them will conceive in the second year of trying. So for, for most couples, I think it is reasonable for NHS IVF treatment to be offered at two years, but then there are some exceptions to that. So we've spoken about PCOS a little bit, or, you know, depending on your age, if your age if you're 38 or 39 and IVF is offered in the area where you live up, up until the age of 40, you might want to go a little bit sooner. Just have a chat with your GP. Your GP mm. will be honest with you and just say, look, you know, I can't refer you until we get to this date. Um, but it's never too early to go and just have a chat with your GP and speak to them and, yeah. you know, check that you are putting it in the right hole. <laughs> I, I, I think that's really interesting, you know, so to know that it can take over a year yeah. I, I just thought I thought I'm I'm fit healthy it would be so easy and it you know I, I'm slightly more complicated because I've got my fallopian tubes are blocked so obviously natural conception sadly is probably not going to happen but um before I knew that I just I, I really didn't think it could take over a year I just you know, and that, that's because that's what we're taught right you yeah. know at yeah. school we do sex education and we're basically taught if you make a mistake and you have unprotected sex, you will get pregnant. And yeah. we take that through our lives with us. And, you know, if we miss taking a pill, we're like, oh, my God, I'm going to get pregnant. Yeah. And then it's you know, funny because, you know, you spend quite a lot of your, your sort of 20s, 30s trying not to, doing everything in your power not to get pregnant, but still yeah. to have a healthy sex, sex life. So you kind of, you know, as you say, like presume that as soon as you do start, you're like, well, who this is going to happen but you know obviously unfortunately the reality isn't is that you know it's not like that for everyone and also it, it, when we watch tv or every series everything it's like they have sex once get pregnant you know what I mean it's just but it's like the reality is so different yeah exactly yeah so I would say after a year um you're not going to be offered IVF after a year it's no. unlikely that's going to be two years but after a year it's reasonable to at least see a doctor get a clinical assessment have a chat and maybe start doing some tests like yourself Alex did you you had a a, a, a test oh, a okay. dye test so with the with the GP they sent me for blood tests um and then they all came back normal um 
and then yes yeah, so then they sent me to referred me to the fertility clinic and with uh, after I think it's the 3d hycosy that's when they discovered that I had blocked fallopian tubes so yeah so IVF was offered to me which is yeah so then obviously they're not going to make you wait no because no exactly yeah they've identified the reason yeah yeah I just want to touch um, on some a couple of lifestyle factors just before we go on to, to, the, to the next bit, because we, you mentioned supplements. What exactly, if we are trying to get pregnant, what supplements should we be taking? So definitely folic acid. That's yep. the one that's most important. So anybody who's trying to conceive should start taking folic acid from the day that they start trying. Um, and, I would say, and vitamin D as well. And that's not necessarily a conception vitamin um a preconception vitamin but we should all be taking vitamin d okay. if we're living in, everyone in the uk should be taking vitamin d as a supplement as well so uh, and they're both really you know they're super cheap and yeah. it's good to get into the habit of taking something every day absolutely when you can see yeah. if you're going to need to do that and what about the blokes because obviously it's not just us what should they be taking so I think just just generally for people who are just starting out trying, the blokes don't necessarily need to take anything. But okay. once you reach that stage where you're like, we are trying to have a baby, we want to do everything that we can, yeah. then there are some supplements. So you can probably the best thing to do if you can afford to is to just go for the ones that have been put together so sort of Pregnacare other brands are available I'm not sponsored by them Um, they do supplements for men and for women Um, but particularly you know if you have a really well balanced diet you probably don't need it but it is worth investing as an insurance policy in a fertility supplement for men zinc is particularly important because they need to have sufficient zinc in order to actually produce the semen that that carries the sperm Mm. um so it's one of those things that it's not really there's not a great deal of evidence and science behind male supplementation but and I think lifestyle actually is much more important especially stress um but it's worth it's worth doing because it's not going to do you any harm what about things like hot baths tight boxer shorts cycling yeah, what is your view on that and affecting the sperm? Yeah, it's it's all important. Men need to take good care and look after their, their testicles. The reason the testicles are on the outside of the body is because it, for them to be on the inside of the body, it's too warm, it's too, you know, it's not a good environment. So you start pushing the testicles into the body. So people who cycle many hours a day and wear cycling shorts, it has been shown that that can impact on fertility, things like spending lots of time in steam rooms and spas, um, saunas, that can impact as well. So Mm. when it comes to fertility, it's far too much of this. And I know you're going to do an episode speaking to your husbands and we really need to involve the men because it's, there are two parties in this. And when it comes to fertility, same with miscarriage, it's not all about the woman, it's about the man, the man as well. So when it comes to miscarriage, um, a significant proportion, it's not quite half, it's less than half, but not far from half of, of miscarriages are because there's a chromosomal abnormality in the sperm. So when it comes to fertility, yeah, men have to do their bit as well. So it's worth them getting some good resources, NHS resources and having a look at things like that. And in terms of, you know, you've mentioned lifestyle factors, like how can we maximise like the chances of getting pregnant? What else can we be doing? I know you mentioned nutrition and exercise, but how how much should we be doing? What is healthy enough, if you see what I mean? 
Yeah, I think generally it's just following general healthy guidelines for nutrition and exercise. So the guidelines around exercise are 150 minutes of moderate intensity physical activity per week. So you know, 25 minutes of brisk walking a day kind of ticks that box. And when it comes to nutrition, it's really it's more about getting all of the nutrients that you need from a well-balanced diet. So if you eat everything, if you eat dairy and you eat some meat and you eat plenty of fruit and veg and you eat a wide variety of foods, then you're probably good. It is worth mentioning obesity because um, obesity does have quite a significant impact on fertility. Um, For that reason, people with a BMI above 30, they don't qualify for IVF on the NHS unless they're able to bring their weight down. And, you know, that can be really difficult for people. Of course. Um, well, actually, I've seen patients, some of my patients who have, with actually quite small amounts of weight loss, um, succeeded in, in getting pregnant when they hadn't done before. So, so working towards being a healthy weight is really important. But I think by far the biggest lifestyle factor when it comes to trying to conceive is stress. Yeah. yeah. And it makes sense, right? Because if you mm. think about... You know, if you're living in a stressful environment, so all of the hormones are circulating in our bodies when we're highly stressed, it's not a conducive environment to to making a baby, which makes sense. So I, I think stress is the most important lifestyle factor that we can work towards changing um, when trying to conceive. And it's often so hard, isn't it, to try and work towards those little things that you can change when it comes to stress. For people listening who maybe have, you know, a partner who's quite stressed and and anyone who is stressed themselves and, you know, obviously when you are trying to conceive, how can you make it so that your environment isn't stressful or that you aren't bringing loads of stress to the table or to the situation? It's, It's really difficult. And I think of all the various different lifestyle factors that we have, stress can seem like the one that we can't do anything about um but i when i talk about stress with patients i think right let's break them down let's let's think about the things that are really highly stressing you in life there'll be a number of them i break it down into three bits so Mm. there'll be a number of things that you can't change that are outside of your control so you know your boss at work is a bully And you feel that there might be something you can do to change that, but there might not be. Like, I can't do anything about that right now. So so let's put those in a box. Those are the things I can't change. um, And I'm going to stop stressing about them. So then you've stopped some stress. Then the things that are stressing you out that you can change, that, you know, it might be actually your boss at work is a bully. And that is something that you know what to do to take action, but you've been putting it off. Well, you know, trying to conceive and stress is an issue. And that might be the motivation to do something. So identify the stressors in your life and um and do what you can to reduce the ones you can and the third one is what de-stresses you is it you know the exercise that you do or cooking or whatever and try and increase those so although it might not seem like a lot there might be five things in each box you've stopped stressing about the things in the first box you've alleviated your stress there you can turn down the ones in the second box and you can turn up the ones in the third box and doing that exercise can make quite a big difference to stress levels Mm. if you're a little bit less stressed then you might sleep a lot better you might eat a lot better um, and you might be more active so even just making small changes and thinking about incorporating things like meditation and breathing activities and mindfulness if it's something that people haven't done before 
can be quite a challenge with men because they're yeah. sometimes they're like Such a yeah that, that's for yeah. women yeah um, they're like I, what the f no exactly <laughs> what the f um so I tend to you, I always keep um, box breathing as a breathing technique Ooh, um, because that. box breathing, it's a really simple, straightforward breathing technique where you just breathe. You inhale for a count of four as you're going up the box. Mm-hmm. You hold your breath for a count of four going across, exhale for four and hold for four. And you just repeat that. And it's what the U.S. Marine SEALs do. Wow. So it's a good conversation with men like, oh, you know, there's this relaxation team that the Navy SEALs do in America, which is all trick. That's where it came from. So it's quite, you know, it's quite manly. And, yeah. But, but yeah, anything like that, anything you could do, any life hacks that can alleviate stress can make a big difference. Yeah, I'm definitely going to be trying that on with Tom. I'm, I'm <laughs> so let me know how you get on. I'm going to use box reading at the beginning of my next yoga class. That sounds lovely. I sometimes do it between patients. Yeah. If, you know, if a day's running away with me and I'm stressed, I do that for literally for a minute or sometimes mm. I'll just do four rounds of it. I love and that it just sends you from your sympathetic to your parasympathetic really quickly just really quickly about exercise so I am um, a personal trainer I teach a lot of um, group fitness classes too much exercise so a lot of people before we found out that I had the block fallopian tube some people said oh maybe you're doing too much exercise yeah. what yeah. is your view on too much and what's your view on HIT? Um, I hate it when people I, say sorry, that the whole sorry. too much exercise thing. <laughs> oh, it's so annoying! Right, of course it is possible to do too much exercise. Like, of course, first of all, yeah, that is a fact. It is possible to do too much, but your too much, Alex, will be different from Pips's too much, which would be different from my too much. And you know, and also, of course, you know, thinking about orthorexia, there's the reasons that you do exercise. Do you have a healthy relationship with exercise? Are you doing it excessively to the point to which? you know, you're in calorie deficit and all of that. So yeah, it's complicated. But generally, the way it was once explained to me, and this is by an exercise um, scientist from Canada, who's really um, respected within the exercise science world. And we generally, in when we're talking about health, how much exercise we should do, the lower end that's recommended is the 150 minutes of moderate intensity activity. And he said, as a bit of a guide, if you're doing 10 times that amount or more, that's around the time that for the typical person, it starts to become detrimental. So if you're training for a marathon, you're all right. If you're doing marathons as training for ultra marathons, well, that's the point at which it might start to become detrimental. So assuming somebody has a good psychological relationship with the exercise that they're doing and they're a fit person. And this is something you've always done, right, Alex? You know, yeah, and, I, yeah. and I'm eating well. So my BMI, I've got a healthy BMI. So I always thought I, I couldn't believe that I was doing too much. But then yeah. I know there is there are people that say hit exercise can be can cause too much stress within the body. So I definitely have laid off that style of training now and I do more yoga and Pilates. Yeah. But I just wanted to get your a professional opinion. But it sounds like you've made some changes in sort of scaling back the hit because of course, you know, it is a stress on the body and it's a cortisol hit to the body. And if we're talking about stress and alleviating stress, it can mean it can almost seem counterintuitive to them be purposefully doing exercise that we know does put stress on the body. But what we also know is that if you do some high intensity training, say you do that three times a week, the short, sharp burst of stress on the body, which is actually what our bodies are well adapted and well 
um, created to deal with can mean that the rest of the time, sort of the chronic low-grade stress can be lower. So doing exercise that takes you to your capacity, like doing HIIT until you feel like you're going to pass out on the floor, Mm. it's not good for when you're pregnant, but actually, you know, if you're doing that a couple of times a week, that might be reducing your overall stress throughout the week. So I think that probably whoever was saying to you that you're doing too much exercise, though I'm sure it was with good intentions, probably in your um, individual circumstance, it's probably fine. Although doing some more restorative stuff like yoga sounds like a good idea. Um, But yeah, generally, in my experience of the people out there in my world, um, I've never so far had to ask a patient to tone down their exercise. It's much more likely to be the other way up it that's good that's good to know so Zoe you've been asking what the f what should we prepare to come to speak to a a GP what should we be asking you when we get into our GP session when we're talking about fertility do you know what my first bit of advice is always just be really upfront and let us know why you're there so you say I've come today to talk about my fertility Um, I'm trying to trying to conceive me and my husband, me and my partner, um, or me on my own using donor sperm, whatever the situation, I've been trying to get pregnant for six months, 12 months, um, and we haven't had any success. So I've come today to see how you can help. So just, you know, just lay it out there, just be upfront with us. And then what we're going to want to know is a little bit of your history. So how long you've been trying, how regularly you've been having sex, you know, what stage of your cycle do you have a regular cycle? What age did you start your periods? How regular are your periods? What's your cycle look like? Do you bleed heavily? Um, a little bit about your general lifestyle. You know, do you have a healthy diet? Any concerns with your health? Um, and that's kind of the first bit of information. We want to know a little bit about your sexual health as well. Um, and we might want to know if you've ever had any gynecological problems in the past. Have you ever, ever had any, any surgery? Um, so I think really you don't need to prepare that much because you're going to have all the answers but just lay it down this appointment is about my fertility and then we know we've got 10 minutes to focus just on that yeah so would the gp send us for any tests um so they they might do um depending on a number of factors depending on your age depending on you know how your periods have been so the first test they're probably going to send you for is a simple blood test and that's to look for things like, well, your hormones, first of all. So to have a look at your hormone levels, depending on your age, they might do something called an FSH, which is a marker of, um, of menopause, particularly if your periods have been winding down. Um, but then we'd also do just a general health blood test. So we'd look at your blood sugar, um, might look at your cholesterol levels and have a little look at your iron status, make sure you're not iron deficient. And, and things like that and we might then if there's a query about whether or not you're ovulating each month do what we call a 21 day progesterone so that's a blood test on day 21 of your cycle if you have a normal 28 day cycle not everybody does um so it would meet, need to be calculated and and that tells us whether or not you've ovulated so these tests aren't great they don't give you a full picture but as a starting point to see if you're ovulating and and if your hormones seem to be where they should be and potentially as a marker of polycystic ovarian syndrome 
um, they're a good starting place. The next test after that would be um, a scan, just to have a look at your ovaries. Mm. And and at what point, obviously, when you've gathered all that information, and I know it's really hard because everyone's so, so different in what their results show. When, at what point would you get referred to a fertility expert? So again, assuming, assuming there isn't anything there that, you know, if you're, if you're not ovulating, for example, in fact, anyone who's not ovulating may require some treatment, especially if people are having less than four periods a year then we might look at referring to a gynecologist straight away. But if we're using the assumption that everything seems to be fine, say, say for example, this is a 30-year-old woman who's been trying to conceive for six months, a blood test and a scan is normal. And if there's nothing in that history to indicate that she might be at higher risk of blocked tubes or something of that nature, then we'd probably just check that she's having sex regularly, give a bit of advice, a bit of reassurance mm. and send her on away for another six months and then ask her to come back at next, we'd next want to see her at 12 months if she still hadn't had success. But that reassurance that actually 80% of couples do conceive within the first 12 months. So at that stage, her and her partner are still likely to fall within that 80%. But if they're in the 20%, then we want them to come back at 12 months. If somebody's been trying for more than 12 months at that point, it, I think it's reasonable. Again, it depends where you are. Yeah. But I think it's reasonable to be referred to the fertility experts to consider further investigations. So looking at things like AMH to see what your fertility is, having a look at your tubes to see if there are any blockages. Um, And the thing I haven't mentioned in all of this is semen analysis as well. So if it gets to that 12 month point, then semen analysis to see what's going on there. Um, What about women in their, I'm 36, if you're 40 trying for a baby, would it be slightly different? Would you still send, would the doctor still send them away for a year or does the timeframe go down <laughs> so, so, so the nice guidelines the nice are the guidelines? same <laughs> but um I can speak for myself and I think probably a lot of my colleagues would agree with me that if a woman is 38 or older um but still within your local area you know you're then in the fight for them to be able to qualify for IVF on the NHS or not then you know normally we would rush if some if somebody's trying for six months and they haven't got pregnant and they're 39 then I'd be thinking about referring and that becomes then I'm, I'm ha- then handing that decision up to the fertility team to see if they're going to make an exception often they won't but you know we're doing everything that we can like yourself Alex someone who's 36 there's still time because yeah. we know that you know your case is different but for your healthy 36 year old with normal tests if it's 12 months it's reasonable to start doing the additional tests like you had but if everything appears to be normal there's a really good chance they're still going to get there's still a 50 percent chance they're going to get pregnant in that second mm. year if they're left alone so yeah. you've got I, the time to, to to let them and it feels like forever it absolutely does forever when that's you and you're <laughs> having to wait two years um but you know with the you know, I do tend to agree that here with the resources that we have with the NHS, I my wish would be for any woman, any couple to have access to fertility treatment, IVF, as long as there's a reasonable chance that it's going to be effective. Um, so therefore, you know, the age cutoffs, you can argue that it's reasonable because the chances of success become much lower mm. after the age of 40 um, and things like BMI do come into it as well. Um, but 
I think offering IVF to people before they've been trying for two years, yeah, if they're in their early or mid thirties, yeah. it's a waste of resources because most yeah. of them are going to get pregnant. Absolutely. Yeah. It's it's also the age. I keep you know we always come back to, to to the age and what's what's the best time in our lives to to be. We're all career women, you know. You know, I I was like I want to focus on my career, and then you know I'm about to hit thirty five, and I'm like, damn. <laughs> if I knew now what I yeah. if I knew what I knew at thirty, what I do now, I basically have a, a very low ovarian reserve for my age. Um, you know, if I'd known five years ago, then maybe I would have done things differently. But yeah. how important is age? And you know, for people who are listening who are sort of you know maybe in their late 20s early 30s and they know they want a family what can they do we I mean you mentioned your ovarian reserve and Mm. it's something that's not familiar to a lot of people and it's not something testing what your ovarian reserve is it's a combination of a scan that looks at your ovaries and it looks at how many follicles are in the race to release the egg that month Mm. and also a blood test that looks for a hormone called anti-malarian hormone amh yeah and from a combination of looking at the results from those they can sort of guesstimate where you're at with your fertility and and i think in the future this will be something that women will be much more savvy with and in their mid-20s people will want to know what their fertility is kind of to be able to help guide them as to what their life choices will be I think it will be commonplace for 25 year olds to know what their AMH is and be having conversations around oh I've got the fertility of an average 21 year old oh I've got the fertility of a 30 year old already so I'm thinking about freezing my eggs I also think it'll be commonplace for 20 something year olds to freeze their eggs Mm. to self-donate even if they are thinking about having children in their mid-30s when they'll probably still be producing eggs they might think well actually why would I use a 35 year old egg when I've got some 25 year old eggs frozen and I think IVF will be much cheaper and much more readily available and I think a lot of women will choose to use their younger eggs even though it's not necessary I mean if you're gonna if you if you kind of think about putting some chicken in the freezer if you're buying chicken on day one but you know you're not going to eat it for two months you're going to freeze it on day one aren't you you're not going to freeze it on day five um so I think it'll be commonplace that a lot of women will freeze their eggs when they're young for self-donation back to themselves when Mm. they're in their 40s or later I think that's such an encouraging and hopeful like view to view to have and I yeah I I hope that that's the case as well I obviously part of the reason of doing this is especially in my situation I want people to think about it you know when they're younger so that they don't have to get to you know the point that I'm at where I'm, I'm you know I need help to 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 be able to have, have children but that's the reason I'm you know I was delighted when you asked me to be on this podcast because I think this conversation that you're having is so important because mm-hmm. you know I froze my eggs at the age of 38 I wish I'd have done it sooner, but I was a 38 year old woman. I'm a doctor. Um, I've got loads of amazing friends and we speak about everything, but we hadn't had these conversations. We hadn't spoken about this. For me, it was when I actually made a TV, a a short TV film for the one show about egg freezing. It's something that had been on my radar for years. Mm, Um, But it took for me to spend a whole day investigating it, the pros and the cons, for me to finally hit the button of go 
to do my fertility tests and to freeze my eggs. And it just made me think, well, if I'm a 38 year old doctor who talks about everything with my friends and it took for that to me to make that decision, what chance do most women out there who are in their thirties, who know they want to be a mum, but who haven't met a partner, what chance do they have of actually having the opportunity to really weigh this up and make a decision? Um, so yeah, my, my advice generally to people who ask me is look, do the tests younger, find out what your ovarian reserve is. Um, if you know, you definitely want to be a mum and you're not yet in a position to have a baby and you're approaching your thirties, at least do that test. It's, it's not, it's a couple of hundred pounds, Mm. but it's money well spent to just know where you're at. What made you like freeze your eggs? It was my, it was my age. Um, it was, I was 38. I was single. Um, I'd been single for a little while and it was that kind of just that approaching 40 and thinking I can't everybody's different I have friends who don't want to have children and and that's absolutely fine but I'm right at the other end of the spectrum in that I've always I've always well I feel like I've always known that I will be a mum I can't imagine you know I'm 40 now I can't imagine living on this planet for another 40 years and not being a mum and of course there are other options that adoption and what have you but I want to have my own children um so when I reached 38 and thought do you know what? I need to wake up because there's a real chance here that I might not have children I might not meet somebody um before my ovaries pack in and I want to in the end when I weighed it up whether to freeze my eggs or not I looked at the pros I looked at the cons and it's not for everybody it's expensive there are no guarantees it's going to work but for me my decision was based on if I do reach the age of 45 and I can't have children of my own and I look back I don't want to regret there being something I could have done and I didn't do Mm. it me I need to make sure I've done everything that I can and I was fortunate fortunate enough to be in a position financially to be able to afford it so um, so that was the decision for me, but it's a really, it's not an easy decision for people no. to make. Yeah. And, and can I ask, sorry, were you um, single at the time you did it? Yeah, yeah. So I was single at the time yeah. and um, and I'm not anymore. I'm now yeah. very happily with a partner. And, you know, yeah. my hope was always that I'll never need to use those eggs. Yeah. But knowing that they're there, it's not an insurance policy because they might, I've got seven eggs. Yeah. They might not work. The chances yeah. that those seven eggs will give me a baby. It sounds like seven eggs is a lot. It's not. Because mm. by the time you thaw them and see which ones are good enough quality and then put them in, you know, if you get one baby out of those seven eggs, you're doing pretty well. Yeah. But it just means I know I've done, I've done everything. Everything you can. And, and how was, what was the process like? It's the same as doing IVF. It's the yeah. same as the first part of the process. So, um I I did the fertility test first of all and I remember the the doctor who looked after I went to create clinic in London and they were brilliant with me and the doctor that looked after me owns the clinic Professor Nargund and the reason I went with them is because that's where we did the filming for the one show and I'd actually therefore seen the freezer cylinders where life is kept, where the eggs are. So I thought, I've seen seen the home where my little eggs are. And what really threw it for me was when I was doing that filming that day and Professor Nargun, we went in there and we wanted to film um, just, and the guy, the technician said, you know, it's safe for us to open it for up to two minutes. Temperatures don't even start, so it's completely safe. And Professor Nargun was like, you can have 10 seconds. And she was like, this is people's life. And she was like, 
but like I want her to have my ex. That's um, so cool. <laughs> she was great, but when she gave me the news about my fertility, um, she said her words were, "You're okay. You're all right. Your fertility's a little bit on the low side for your age, but you're okay." And I was like, "I've never been told that I'm anything on the low side for my age," and. It was a bit of a blow, to be honest, because I think secretly, arrogantly, I was kind of thinking that I was going to get news that actually your fertility is really good. It's equivalent to a 32 year old. Um, That's what I was expecting to. I, I, yeah. <laughs> I thought exactly the same, even with um, I've just done one round of IVF and I just arrogantly just thought my partner, he's really super fit and healthy. We both were both fit and healthy and I still think young. And I just thought we'd create, you know, a star embryos. Yeah. And the reality is. <laughs> They weren't. Well, you know when they grade them, but that, I mean, yeah. we, still, we still got some, but yeah. I definitely thought we were going to produce more. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so there's all of that that comes with it as well, isn't it? It's just... Yeah, and it's dangerous because I'm sure people have said the same to you, like people throughout my life, they're like, you'll be fine, like you're so fit and you're so yeah. healthy and you look young for your age and yeah. you'll be fine. It's like, actually, do you know what? That's not true. Like, of course, being healthy throughout your life helps but your genetics are what mostly predetermines at what age your fertility will end Mm. and you know the biggest clue you have actually is the age at which your mum went through menopause menopause, that's a big clue but you know being healthy and looking after them does help preserve keep keep them going a little bit longer but if you could give any advice to someone who so their friends going through IVF or freezing their eggs what to say and what not to say. Were there any things that your friends were saying to you that would really upset you? They weren't quite understanding it. It's tricky, isn't it? Because it's a bit of a minefield because people want to be there for you to support you. And because I was freezing my eggs and doing it alone without a partner, um, one of the ways I prepared myself for doing the injections and knowing that my hormones were going to be all over the place and it was going to be emotional was I'd booked in a chat or a walk or I'd booked in some time with a friend every single day and told them the reason why they were responsible for sort of checking in on me that day. Um, so they probably did go wrong a few times with the things. I think for me, one of the big things is when people overly reassure mm-hmm. and, you know, say, but you're going to, you're absolutely going to be fine because of X, Y, and Z. It's ha- actually doesn't work like that. Yeah. Um, but having said that, for anyone who's listening to this podcast, I think the worst thing you can do is shy away from being supportive and, whenever this it's the same for anything that somebody's going uh, can affect them emotionally and you can't predict how so it could be you know a bereavement or an illness or anything of that nature just ask permission or just yeah. ask rather than saying giving your advice and telling them what is and telling them what isn't just saying look you know I'm here for you is it a difficult time how are you coping how can I help you what do you want to talk about you know how are you feeling do you want me to give you advice or do you want me to keep your mouth shut? Like just, yeah. just ask before you mm. fire off your mouth. Usually people have good intentions. I really like that um, bit of advice if you are doing it on your own to, you know, to schedule in once a day seeing someone because talking mm. is just so important and it's what's yeah. got me through and I'm sure you guys through this, totally. this mad journey we're all on. I mean, I was dating this guy at the time and I was in a restaurant. I was just going to the loo. I was injecting myself. It was so weird. But when you're at home on your own in the morning and you're sticking needles in your belly, you just think, what am I doing? Like, how did I get here to the point where I'm in my bedroom on my own 
stabbing myself with needles to try and preserve some eggs because I'm single and I'm 38 and my gosh, what have I done? And I knew I was sort of going to go through all of that. So just preparing yourself for it. And even just thinking that's how I'm going to feel when you do feel like it, you're like, yeah, this feels shit, but I knew it was going to happen. Like, there it is. There's that self-depreciation where there's those tears, there's that anger and you can almost tick them off. So just prepare for it to be a rough, right. a rough experience. Yeah. Rough ride. And, yeah. and just if, for those who are listening, who are thinking about freezing their eggs, where is it? What's a good place to start? What, where can they go? What can they do? I think the best place to start, I I would, you know, have a chat with your GP if you're not sure. But admittedly, you know, because because this isn't something that's available on the NHS, it's not something that GPs are necessarily that clued up on. And in terms of where to go for your treatment, um, it's it's a really individual choice. And all fertility clinics have a counsellor attached to them so a a good place to start might be having having a session of counselling if you're not so sure what to do I would be wary of success rates a lot of clinics quote their success rates and it it can be a bit misleading Um, so I'll give you an example so London Bridge Hospital um, the fertility clinic that's attached to them appear to have a very low success rate but that's because a lot of their patients are patients who've already had IVF on the NHS the Bridget Guy's hospital Mm. and then that's the nearest hospital so they go there so a lot of the patients that they're receiving are possibly older already had failed attempts at IVF compared to Harley Street where you might have younger people who are going for their first attempt so it appears that they have a higher success rate but they're dealing with a different group of patients so I think be wary of that I think just do a research and because yeah. I think that's the thing it's recommendations like, from friends yeah well. it's yeah. just so it's, it can be so overwhelming and um, do you have any egg freezing stats for us for in terms of success rates of if you freeze your eggs what the likelihood is it's quite unclear it's, it's really unclear and best place to look for this is the hfea yeah yep. okay. uh, one of the reasons is if you're looking at success rates of being eggs frozen then women come back often years later to use the eggs and then the chances you know because there's because egg freezing is relatively new as a practice and because the number of women that have actually reached the point where they've come back to use their eggs Mm. so far is is quite low we're working with quite low numbers right Um, but do you think this will improve it's constantly evolving and there are new techniques all the time that improve the chances um, so one of the new techniques is a process called vitrification, where they flash freeze the eggs rather than freezing mm. them slowly. And that's been shown to increase success rates. So if you compare the success rates in Spain compared to the UK, our success rates are nowhere near as good as the Spanish success rates because they've been using this process of vitrification much longer. Wow. So you could argue that current success rates are much more likely to be in line with the Spanish ones because we now use the same technology right obviously no guarantees until we have that so success rates are tricky misleading and again as an individual you know just because the success rates are whatever percentage that doesn't mean that they're likely to translate for yourself because again age is a factor the quality of the egg that you produce is reduced the older that you are Mm. and even within that 
you know we don't all conform to what our age is so you know pips you and i unfortunately yeah are, when it comes to, <laughs> it comes to our our eggs we're because it's the one thing in life that um, i think we're perhaps older than our yeah, actual age yeah no totally i yeah i'm unfortunately quite a lot older but at least i know and i can do and i can do something and make a plan now um you know and i i feel grateful that i do but yeah it's it's as we know it's such a minefield it is a mind. So just finishing things off, um, obviously, fertility, this whole journey, there is so much pressure and anxiety and stress that comes with it. Can you just give us a few things, best ways to look after ourselves? What support is out there? If you are feeling really overwhelmed, what can we do? I know we've touched on meditation, yoga, talking to friends, but is there anything else that we could just... I think, you know, finding the trying to conceive community, um, because so many women and couples feel like they're out there they're doing this on their own purely because it's not spoken about as much as it Mm. should be but there's a building especially with social media they're trying to conceive community is I think a great place of support it's tricky as well though because once you're part of that community and then you do get pregnant and have your baby it's really difficult so sort of find your tribe I think that can be really helpful but also you know addressing stress I can't stress enough (laughs) yeah how important that is and you know if you're trying to conceive if you're as a couple you have infertility which is a medical diagnosis which can be sometimes treated with drugs or interventions or surgical procedures you know all those things actually it's not over the top to take significant steps towards managing your stress changing your job and but yeah I think stress I can't stress enough how big a factor stress is and I think all of the steps that we're willing to take when it comes to conceiving well you know we'll we'll do big things we'll spend money on loads of supplements and you know medically we might go down the route of investigations that are unpleasant so I think really throw what you've got at stress whether that is going for therapy whether that is changing your job if your job is really stressing you out um, invest in doing what you can to manage your stress. If it's working less hours, reducing your hours down or, you know, giving some one of your commitments, it, it might be the thing that makes the difference. And actually, once you have a baby, you're going to need yeah. to make some adjustments anyway. anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I'll, this thing always sticks in my mind. I'll end with this. Um, I'm a scientist, so I don't believe in like the universe and hypnotherapy and all that. I do, actually. And I was seeing a hypnotherapist a few years ago and she was telling me about um, a couple who'd been trying to conceive for three years. They'd had all the tests. Everything was fine. And um, and she said to this woman, she communicated with her baby in the next dimension and it all gets mm-hmm. kind of like witchy. But the baby gave the message to the woman, quit your job. And she said, your baby's saying that you need to quit your job and then the baby will come. Anyway, she's told me this woman quit a job, got pregnant the next month and had a baby. Wow. So I think the biggest take home that most people who I think will listen to this podcast, I think that simply outside of, you know, obviously see a GP, get all the medical support, but the biggest change that people can make for themselves is to address their stress. Yeah, amazing. So Dr. Thank Zoe, thank you. you so much for chatting to us on What The F. It's been such an honour to have you on and we really, really appreciate all your incredible advice uh, that you've given us. We've got so much food for thought and great, great resources as well. So thank you. Thank you so, so much. much for having me and well done. I'm so proud Thanks. of you both. Oh, well thank you. Oh, well done. Take, Take care. care. Bye. 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 
Now, it's that time in the podcast where we hear from our resident fertility nutritionist, Maddie, in her fertility corner. In this week's episode, I'm going to talk about vitamin D. Because as we enter into these colder, darker months, it might be worth considering supplementing with vitamin D. And this is because our bodies can't make a significant amount from the low-lying sun. Now, the reason why vitamin D is vital, it's implicated in healthy bones, it supports the immune system. It's also regarded as a hormone as it activates over 900 different genes within the body. And low vitamin D status is often associated with endometriosis, adenomyosis, um, autoimmune conditions and polycystic ovarian syndrome. Now, the way I work as a nutritional therapist is I suggest testing and not guessing. So you can work out what strength you need for you. Now, there are small amounts of vitamin D and they are found in dairy, oily fish, eggs and a tiny bit in mushrooms. So the vegans out there, it's really important that you consider your vitamin D status. Oh, my gosh. How incredible is Dr. Zoe Williams? That was so informative. I could have spoken to her for hours. And we are so lucky to have gotten that much info out of her. I mean, usually it's, what, 10 minutes in the GP? Yeah, exactly. It's just not (laughs) Not enough time. Not enough, is it? Thanks for joining us. If you've got any questions or comments, please do get in touch with us on Instagram at SoulSisterFitness, at Pips underscore Taylor and at WTF Fertility. And you can rate us and subscribe if you like what you've heard. We'll see you next time. Sending so much love and be confident in knowing you're doing absolutely everything you can. You've got this.